Mr. Wickham, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure to be here. Why don't we start with your background? Where'd you start off, sort of the arc of your career so far and what you're doing now? Sure, um, I'm a native Iowan. I was born in a small town in Northeastern Iowa, the fifth of eight children. Uh, my parents were educators and as the fifth of eight children, there was a lot of natural dispute resolution going on in my family. And a lot of times those that rule fell to me. Uh, grew up in this small community, went to the University of Iowa. And while there, uh, I uh, did uh, an internship in Washington, DC in the office of Senator Tom Harkin. It was a summer internship. Came back from after a great summer in DC, finished my undergraduate degree, went on to, to law school and didn't think too much about Washington, DC and, and uh, politics, so I was kind of consumed by law school. But then after law school, I, I decided that I, I wanted to, to leave Iowa and uh, have some experiences in Washington, DC. And so uh, similar to you, um, I started uh, at the uh, National Institute of Health. I was a, a contractor there and was able to work with some really great people, including Dr. Francis Collins and very uh, peripherally Dr. Fauci and others. But I really felt a need to get closer to the action, something uh, in keeping with my background uh, as a, an intern in the Senate. So I applied for a job at the Office of Legislative Counsel. Uh, I had an editorial background. Laura of you felt very comfortable in the, the position of writing the laws. So this was in the um, uh, fall of 1994 and the, the uh, spring of 1995, uh, the Legislative Council office in the House was prepared to make me a job offer when they heard from the new speaker, Speaker Gingrich, that they would not be hiring any more Legislative Councils. There was a hiring freeze. And then there was a suggestion from the then Legislative Council, Pope Barrow, that I talked to the parliamentarians office because they were in need of, of people. And I said, what is a parliamentarian and how do you spell that? So I really didn't have a, 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 an aspiration to be a parliamentarian or a member of that office, but I went and saw the then parliamentarian, a, a legendary man named Charlie Johnson. And on my first, during my interview, uh, Koki Roberts of ABC News poked her uh, head into the office and asked a question of Mr. Johnson. And then a couple minutes later, Sonny Montgomery, a representative from Mississippi, the father of the Montgomery GI Bill, also came in and asked a question. I thought, this seems like a very exciting place to work. And they indicated that this would be a a job with a lot of on-the-job training and a, a long uh, growth potential. So I uh, signed up with the parliamentarian's office as an assistant parliamentarian uh, in April of 1995. And I stayed with the office working as an assistant parliamentarian, deputy parliamentarian, and then eventually was appointed 
the parliamentarian of the House in uh, 2012 by, by then Speaker John Boehner and uh, have uh, just recently retired from that office and now work in the private sector. Excellent. So let's talk about this parliamentarian office and person. So can you talk about what exactly does the parliamentarian do uh, and you know what's the the role it plays in the House, and I guess as it compares to the Senate? Sure. The parliamentarian is first and foremost appointed by the Speaker, but that appointment is by law without regard to political affiliation. This nonpartisan charter, along with a tradition of long-term service to the House, no matter which party's in control, has really produced a unique office. The um, parliamentarian I referenced, Mr. Johnson, has been affiliated with the office for over 55 years. He's retired, but still is a, a very important consultant. Mr. Sullivan, my predecessor, served in the office for 25 years. I also was in the office for 25 years. And that allows for uh, us to be a trusted advisor, no matter which party is in control. I saw four party switches in my, my tenure in control. The two functions, there's two main functions to the office. The first is that real-time high-profile function of advising the speaker, the members, the staff, the general public on parliamentary procedure in the House. The parliamentarian sits to the uh, direct uh, left of the speaker or the speaker pro tem and is uh, that person's advisor on uh, parliamentary procedure. And that position is manned by uh, a parliamentarian every moment that the House is in session. So that does indicate that all of the members see you, all of our um, our proceedings are broadcast by C-SPAN, and that, that is something that is very highly visible. The second function is uh, probably more important, but, but less known, and that is that the office is the keeper of the precedence of the House. Once again, we're charged by law with compiling, analyzing, and publishing the precedence of the House. The House operates under the principle of of stare decisis in that that legal principle means that we're going to let make like decisions over time, that we're going to use the precedents from 5, 10, 100, 200 years ago to govern uh, a current procedural problem. And so in that way, the parliamentarian acts a lot like an umpire calling balls and strikes on the basis of precedent. The Senate uh, also has a parliamentarian. The differences, I think, start with the differences in our bodies. 435 members of the House for two-year terms. and the Senate, six-year uh, terms, 100 members. Those 100 members all on different schedules with, uh, with uh, representation election cycles being different. The House, every member generally is elected, sworn in, and starts their term on the exact same day. 
Furthermore, the Senate has a different role constitutionally in that the, the, the House's role under the Constitution, we, we foresee it as a, an initiator of, of, of legislation. Their role as the under the origination clause as being the, the uh, House of Congress selected by the Constitution to originate tax measures, power to tax, power to destroy, uh, making it a much different body that way. The Senate, known as our deliberative body, it's uh, one of its main functions is advice and consent on treaties and, and nominations. And that's uh, something that's a very different role. And I think the parliamentarians offices in both offices, both on both sides of the Capitol uh, reflect that role. Uh, having a first, a core nonpartisan um, charter, but then uh, oftentimes uh, comparing once again, a sports analogy to a football official and a baseball umpire that we both know the general parameters of, of each other's uh, rule, but you would never want uh, a football referee or a baseball umpire to switch jobs and, and do any, any meaningful work. So the, the, Parliamentarian office itself, how big is it? How many people work there? And what is the type of people that work in the, in the office? Sure, it's um, composed of, of six attorneys and three clerks in the immediate office of the parliamentarian. And then we have a office that is dedicated to publishing the precedents. And that's another four. So it's uh, about 13, 14 FTE equivalents. Every person that we hire uh, comes from a nonpartisan background. The uniqueness of the position is, is that you have to be willing, as I was over 25 years, to not tell anyone how you voted, never have a yard sign, never attend a political rally, even small talk in cocktail parties is very, very um, uh, guarded because that nonpartisan charter is taken so seriously. The moment someone knows that a parliamentarian is uh, acting in a, in a manner that benefits one party or another, the office's mission is, uh, is, is severely compromised. So you talk about the parliamentarian as being an umpire, um, and that implies a, a sort of an, you know, uh, that all of the rules are imposed from the outside. Right. Um, and you're just kind of following the rule book, but mm -hmm. these rules must have changed over time and evolved. So how does that rule ev evolution happen? Is it because of parliamentarians judgments over time? Have, have they played a creative role in that evolution or is it all coming from, you know, the members themselves in the way that they're dealing with, you know, various processes and procedures and challenges? It's a great question. Uh, at the outset, the thing that we always have to remember is that the House of Representatives is a majoritarian body, and that is established by the Constitution, such that a majority is going to, uh, starting explicitly without uh, a bill is passed into law, uh, that a majority is going to be able to establish the rules of procedure. But largely, that tradition of stare decisis 
um, plays a role in that most of the rules do not change over time. The most fundamental change has been that of the committee on rules to produce special orders of business that deviate from the standing rules to allow for more um, effective scheduling of matters of import to the then governing majority. So a lot of times what we are doing is advising on the current rules, how they operate, and then sometimes responding to external reform ideas and how, uh, how those types of ideas would fit within the current rules, other similar efforts in the past, how we foresee um, legislative agendas being able to be carried out under the rules. Those are the types of we uh, technical advice that we would provide with regard to the rules. And then also we'll often generate um, ideas to change the rules where there's uh, some mismatch between where the majority's uh, agenda is and trying to carry that out or how legislation is uh, formulated, all done in a nonpartisan way, essentially working uh, like a technician on an assembly line for the cars that are coming in. And the first car might be voting reform, the next car could be abortion, the next car could be immigration, but all of them having individual idiosyncrasies or uh, um, rule related elements that we, uh, we would try to, to identify and then, and then bring to the attention of the majority. So you do play a creative role in that you're considering new kinds of rules or adjustments to the rules that could be beneficial to the institution. Exactly. And in terms of the the kind of the the set of rules that you're controlling or that you're, I guess, the umpire of, I should say, you know, mm -hmm. when I think about the concept of rules in Congress, you know, there's many different types of rules come to mind. You know, one of them is, you know, these, you know, the hard rules set by the Constitution. And then there's a level of rules that I guess in your case that in theory could be wiped out and replaced at any particular time if the Congress so just chose to do so. Uh, they don't, but they could in theory be totally changed. And then there's a third set of rules that are more informal, either they're within parties, you know, they're just kind of behaviors or whatever, you know, there's those sets of rules. And so it sounds like your, your circle of rules is really that middle one uh, that's hard coded, it's written down. Um, and you're but you don't really touch the norms piece and you, you can't touch the constitutional piece. Is that right? Yes, we do advise on those two outer poles, but the uh, outputs from our office, uh, the House Rules and Manual that is published by our office every two years um, contains a, um, the Constitution Jefferson's Manual of Parliamentary Procedure, which we incorporate into the standing rules, and then the standing rules of precedence. It's a 1600 page tome that each member gets that presents those three pillars of 
our practice. But at the meantime, at the same time, we are advising on those hard constitutional issues and then the the norms as well that you know those 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 bedrocks of we have 435 members we have two-year terms the constitution requires us to come into session on one day january 3rd unless we change it by law those types of things play into our advice as well as the norms i think we've talked about or at least quite a bit of discussion has occurred in the Congress about schedules and scheduling of members and travel of members and, and those types of things that would not be anywhere written down within any of those texts that I just referenced, but are really um, key uh, discussion pieces and thought uh, instruments for parliamentarians. So you do get involved in the unwritten rules in addition to the written rules? Yes, because it is such a, um, a necessary element of uh, what we do. One, one example that I pull out quite a bit is that the two inventions that the parliamentarian most resents are one, air travel, and two, televising of proceedings. Though neither of those are written in any of the the manuals or house practice. Well, there's some coverage of of televising, but those uh, are fundamental things that shape how we do our job and how the the Congress uh, proceeds. So, when it comes to these informal rules, do you get involved in the intra-party rules? Like, for instance, this Hastert rule. Uh, that that many talk about that seems to be some kind of an informal um rule uh within a party or just within the speaker's own mind uh is that something that you would get involved in or does that move itself over into a different camp of rule it largely would not it would be something that is a governing philosophy of the majority party uh how much outreach how much to rely on the votes of another party or how much to uh, go it alone for lack of a better word is something that we would leave to the the political um the people the purveyors of, of of the political advice so when you think of these rules and whether all these different types of rules particularly the ones that you're covering the most you know so what what are ultimately the purpose of these rules right the constitution doesn't give much doesn't give much guidance on what rules to put in Congress and how it should work. So what's the purpose ultimately of the rule? When you see a rule, do you ask yourself, is this serving the purpose X and then judge it whether to be good or bad based on that purpose? You know, what, what are these rules really trying to do? Yeah, it's good to start with that, that bedrock, which is article one of the constitution. We do quite a bit of lecturing on the amount of, procedural detail that is there. We usually say it's concise yet ample. The paragraph, there's essentially one paragraph, excuse me, one clause of the constitution that covers everything from um, a majority to pass a bill to uh, veto procedure and override. All of that is in one paragraph 
and has, you know, spawned thousands and thousands of pages of written words from, from people that you've interviewed on this program. And so that is our, our guiding light, our North Star. And when we move along from that, but it is at its heart a legislative body, and we will be the ones to highlight the rules or discuss ideas for rules that move legislation, uh, that we talked about that majority agenda, that the parliamentarian would work with the majority party on rules that would allow for legislation to progress. Also working with the majority and minority on certain minority rights that the rules have sought to protect. Well, so I, I think the way you frame that is quite interesting when you talk about the majority versus the minority, because you know obviously when the constitution was set up, most of the framers were against the notion of party to begin with. And yet that seems to be a a driving framework that people use when typically I would think, you know, on a bill by bill basis, there'd be a majority or a minority. When I hear majority minority, I think about is that do a majority of members support this bill or a minority of members support this bill versus a party definition of majority minority. Mm -hmm. So the way that you're you you think of the parliamentarian is is on the is assisting them. I wouldn't call it the majority party, just the majority. To get majority kinds of legislation up for vote is that kind of where you're going i'm trying to nail it down yeah. a little bit more specifically yeah i think you're right and that there has been an evolution of a more centralized more party dependent system over the last 200 some years but there are also mechanisms whereby that lowercase majority, a majority of members on a given proposal uh, plays out under the rules. And we are knowledgeable of them, but because of the creep of partisanship, those lowercase majority um, situations that I think you've just referenced become um, less and less common, but they, they are very important uh, to remember that they exist because those are often the issues that are most um, appealing are those that cross party lines and that um, are uh, the product of or, or, or um, involve cross party uh, coalitions, et cetera. So when you think about any given rule, right, any given parliamentary procedure, et cetera, and you would need to give it a judgment, is this a good or a bad rule? Mm -hmm. You know, or it needs to be changed or reformed because it's not achieving, you know, either it's not directly achieving the objective of the constitution, but again, that's quite vague. So how would you judge an individual rule within the body of rules that you, that you publish? That's a good way to put it, that we would counsel, first of all, uh, being a majoritarian body and the House has its constitutional charter to determine the rules of its proceedings. 
we would look at it through the filter of does it uh, violate any of the other uh, required attributes of the Constitution? And then secondly, what is its effect on the deliberative process? Uh, how is it going to affect the day-to-day -day activities of the, um, the House as it currently sits? That's the way we would filter out whether it's a good rule or not, not placing a value judgment on it uh, through a different lens, but, but starting with that constitutional focus and then looking at it through the parameters of the house as an ecosystem, how it, it uh, lives and breathes on a, a daily, weekly, yearly basis. Oftentimes projecting ahead, looking at, well, this is where it starts, but we're, we're looking at it from, you know, the perspective of 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. But it sounds like you would still look at a rule and say, does this help a majority to get legislation through the process? Not entirely, no. That, that's, that's, I think we would take a more institutional view to say, does this help the institution? Does it allow for, for uh, all 435 members to, um, to properly carry out their role and, and try to do it uh, in a way that is keeping with Article One of the Constitution and then also the traditions of the House. We're, we're the institutional memory uh, of the House. So oftentimes a lot of these proposals have come up before and we would have notes or would have uh, reactions based on on, on the precedence of the house. Yeah, so I think what you bring up there is this concept of, on the one side, there's the majority rule idea to push that, that you know, legislation backed by a majority should move on to the Senate, right? I mean, if it's voted on and goes through the proper mm -hmm. procedure. So you can imagine that as a kind of properly functioning Congress where a, a properly functioning house where a majority was able to vote and move its legislation through. But you, the other part you brought up here, and you, you tempered that, it sounds like, with this idea that there is this concept of equal representation that's been laid out in the Constitution. And so it's not all about majorities moving their, 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 mm -hmm. their uh, the legislation through. It's also about each member having some kind of fundamental input into that process that you, know, you, you could, for instance, have a, a set of rules that would just ensure equal representation, right? Uh, that every member has exact same powers. Every member has an ability to add informational value to a bill, right? And that could be a totally different set of rules and procedures that would support that goal uh, at the expense of getting things through. So it sounds like you do kind of temper this. You have a balance on the one side of majority driven procedures. And then also this notion of, you know, a universal kind of equality among the members that would typically be talked about more in a, as a minority rights kind of question. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. You you've placed it in very philosophical terms. Another way to think about it is in practical terms, and I'll try to give an example. Over the last 
10 to 15 years of my career, one of the complaints from the rank and file members was a lack of access to the agenda, that their bills were not coming forward, oftentimes with bipartisan support. They were not being considered in the committees or in the House, that the majority leadership was considering only a very narrow perspective. And I, we could document rules changes, policy choices that led to this precipice. Well, in reaction to that, the rank and file, et cetera, expressed their displeasure with the majority and suggested rules changes. Uh, one group called the Problem Solvers Caucus. And so we would work with the Problem Solvers Caucus and the majority and the minority on the technical aspects of their um, idea. In this case, they developed an idea for a consensus calendar where bills that had a certain threshold of co-sponsors would be expedited to the floor. So that philosophical principle of all 435 um, members having equal representation is aligned with or has to be considered within the practical context of if you push members too far this way, you will get a backlash. Mm -hmm. And that backlash can be um, viewed through rules changes at you know 1970s, 1990s, 2020. And that's the kind of advice that we provide and, and try to do it in, in the context of both the constitutional principle that you're um, discussing, plus those decades of experience seeing how when a particular philosophy or, or um, agenda setting procedure takes place, what, what a natural reaction would be to that. So let's move on to the different kind of groups of rules. Uh, along the bill to law process, right? So I guess, you know, one big area is when a bill is introduced, which committee does it go to, right? And then after that, the committee may, you know, there's within the committee itself, there's a set of rules. And then after it's reported, it goes to a rules committee and more things happen. And then ultimately it's on the floor where there's rules. So can we kind of go through each one and what's the, what do you think the key issues are to think about um, at each step of the process and how does the parliamentarian get involved or, uh, uh, you know, what kind of powers are wielded at each level. Uh, so why don't, why don't we start with the, the, the bill submission and referral to committee? Sure. Um, all of the legislative activity in the House of Representatives starts in one place, and that is uh, the informal box known as the hopper. And the ability to, uh, for any bill, any member to introduce a bill while we're in session. And that bill traditionally has been able to be uh, of any uh, form or um, of any um, particular origin, as long as it was signed by a member. And then that bill uh, would then 
be dropped in the hopper and then referred to the one of the 21 standing committees of the house. Those, the rules of the house govern that process and provide that the speaker is the, um, the deciding authority on which committee a bill goes to. By tradition, uh, the speaker has relied on the parliamentarian to fulfill that function. So one of the main, uh, one of the largest volume of outreach we have, we have as an office is to the, um, to the members in terms of what the committee of jurisdiction is over a particular idea, over a particular text. And then eventually we make that recommendation to the speaker on the actual referral of the bill to committee. But in, I guess it sounds the way that you're describing it is you can say that a healthcare bill should go to the healthcare committee if there were such a committee. Uh, but the speaker could say, no, I think it's science and technology and yeah. override you. Yeah, that, that's a, a, a common reaction. And one of the real great things about the House of Representatives, everyone thinks of it in very partisan terms and very uh, heavy handed uh, thoughts when it comes to speakers of the House. But for the tradition for as long as the parliamentarian's house has, or office has been in existence, all speakers have outsourced that job to the parliamentarians and the, the uh, referral process has been nonpartisan and precedence-based since, uh, you know, for the last hundred or so years. And that, that to, to me would go to your unwritten unwritten rules and that the parliamentarian makes the referral decisions and and that's obviously very consequential as there's 12,000 bills introduced each congress got it and so once it's been and obviously there's lots to talk about with regard to that process and how it's changed over time and i know that there's trends there that you've discussed in the past but why don't we move on instead to the to the committee so within the committee once it's referred to a committee i mean most people think that the chairman's kind of the dictator of that committee and they can come up with any rules they want. And uh, is that true? Or do no, you, does no. the parliamentarian control, or the, I would no. say the parliamentary procedure control what's happening inside those committees? It, it does. Uh, there, there are not a lot, but once again, that majoritarian tradition that there needs to be a majority to, um, to adopt a recommendation with regard to the bill as it comes out of a committee. And I think that's a good place for you and I's discussion to focus is that there have been more and more rules that have focused on the transparency of committee proceedings. Um, that in the 70s and uh, before that, uh, some of the reforms of the 70s, the committees were largely uh, uh, black boxes without uh, much uh, regard for their activities uh, in terms of the public eye, obviously televising those proceedings and then uh, recording how individual members voted in committee were um, developments to that time. Now there's more and more requirements that the text of the amendments that were adopted at committee and the final uh, passage or uh, the final 
vehicle moved to the house are now governed by the rules. And those would be the types of things the parliamentarian would counsel on along with certain budgetary um, effects of the bills. So there's some transparency uh, initiatives. So just to ensure that there's a majority of the committee supports legislation before it's, and, and, the, and the text is somehow traceable when it's reported to the floor, is that right? Or to the Correct. Uh, I, I think I may have mentioned, but one of the things that is happening more and more is the front loading of the process that more and more decisions, more and more um, energy is focused on the um, legislative vehicles prior to their introduction, prior to their markup or hearing in committee, prior to their actual consideration on the House floor. And the rules have, have, have tried to, the rules have evolved to, uh, to keep up with this, this phenomenon. Yeah, unfortunately, as you increase the transparency of the committees, a lot of that power may just, you know, skip over to the chairman's office, uh, or the speaker's office, I should say, uh, where unfortunately the transparency can't penetrate, uh, at least under the current rules, as far as I understand. That is certainly one opinion, yes. Um, so in the committee, it sounds like there's this, there, there is some control over this majoritarian concept. Um, and then once it's reported out of the committee uh, in the House, it goes through the Rules Committee where anything can, anything can happen, it seems, under the current scenario, right? It can be, the bill can be completely replaced. It can be mm -hmm. totally open rules. It can be mm -hmm. closed. What happens there and how does that, how does the rules of the parliamentarian kind of govern that versus the ad hoc mm -hmm. rules made by the Rules Committee? It's a it's a very fundamental part of the process and one that we often tell our foreign visitors that are from other parliaments, other experiences to watch the House Rules Committee because it is unique often among other parliaments, but it is such a, a fundamental piece of the um, of the process. Uh, a couple decisions that uh, have happened over the history of the House that that make uh, the Rules Committee so fundamental. First, a decision that uh, it would be the Speaker's Committee. The Speaker at one time served on the Rules Committee up until the um, till the uh, revolt against Joe Cannon in, in 1910. That idea of the Speaker's Committee uh, oftentimes replicated in other parliaments that it's an agenda setting body. And then it was over time taken on a more partisan makeup than the other committees, which reflect the ratio of majority to minority party members in the House. And then finally, their ability to produce what we call special rules of business, special orders or rules, which allow for the majority to take up a particular measure outside of the order set by the standing rules of the House. And that's how the House uh, implements its agenda by the Speaker and the majority leadership conveying to the Rules Committee 
that they want to consider Bill X or Y at this time, and then that special rule voted on by the the uh, the partisanly the uh, the more partisan rules committee then is is uh, is reported to the floor, and then the House adopts that and then moves on to the underlying legislative proposition. So when we talk about this kind of majoritarian ideal, right, or even the equal representation ideal, to me, that sounds um, pretty far from it. If you have a, you know, this the speaker can kind of like change anything at the last, bring anything they want up, or they can, you know, replace, etc. So it would seem that this is kind of like a almost like a wild west right before it goes onto the onto the floor is that the way it's viewed you know by parliamentarians or is it this is this seen as a kind of a, a a normal you know i'm just thinking back to like when when it happened with canon right they obviously they they changed it for a reason they wanted to get things done they wanted to they thought they were strengthening the institution when they were doing that but obviously it has consequences what do you think about that that whole notion of the rules committee wielding those kinds of powers and the ability to change that, uh, what's coming out of committee? I think we would advise, and I, as I look at it, and start with that constitutional principle in Article 1 that the House can determine the rules of its proceedings. And to put that in context, it's, uh, it's been interpreted as a lowercase m. You know, the majority of the House, the Constitution provides for uh, it to be a majoritarian body. So what we would do as parliamentarians would counsel that uh, the House of Representatives on that majority taking that action and not only how it could be used in 2022, but also in the future. So when I look back, one of the most fundamental decisions was the House changing its rules, even pre-canon, to allow for the Rules Committee to have this power. And uh, lowercase majority tomorrow, or using the process understanding rules, could take away that power if they wanted to. So that would take we would be advising or counseling on on that on that point at every interval of of the rules change so once it's through this rules committee if it's lucky enough uh not to be squelched by the the speaker um and it gets out there uh so what rules will govern it when you know what are the rules kind of that cover the floor obviously there's the rules yeah. for a particular bill but there are other rules you With know how do you run the floor basic uh, rule is the basic element of debate is the hour rule. So every special order of business would be considered under the hour rule. And then there's a vote on the previous question, which is the, the way that the House ends debate. And that's the, one of the fundamental differences between the House and the Senate. Senate with its tradition of unlimited debate, the House with an hour rule, and a previous question vote as a way to terminate debate. And then after that, the norms of uh, how a majority uses its uh, authority to produce a special order of business, whether it 
makes an order, as we saw last week with the Competes Act, hundreds and hundreds of amendments and hours and hours of debate, or it chooses to make an order zero amendments and very little debate. Those are decisions for the majority to undertake and to put in that special order of business, along with you know, several uh, overlaps with, with the standing rules of the House. And, and to change those rules, again, it's a majority-based thing at the beginning of each Congress. Where That's they... correct. And, and so when people say, how can you have this um, partisan loaded um, rules committee and how can you uh, support uh, the you know, volume of restrictive rules that restrict debate, restrict amendment, what we always say is that at the beginning of that process or the end of that process is that every rule for the rules committee has to get a majority of votes. Right. So when it comes to rules, uh, the parliamentary rules or whatever, any given rule in the house, how much do you think about rules that are in other, that are in the UK's parliament or in Germany or in Japan? You know, is there, you have a small team there, right? It's not a big competitive intelligence team think, no. giving all kinds of information about rules that work or don't work in other jurisdictions. How no. much do you, are you able to look at that? And, and again, do the, does the speaker even care if you did have uh, brought in kind of competitive ideas or new things into the, that would, that would make the institution run better? Yeah, I've been lucky uh, that the speakers have supported our efforts. I've, uh, you know, traveled to 20 or so nations on behalf of the House and studied their practice extensive um, collaboration with the EU Parliament, the House of Commons, and uh, some of the emerging African democracies working with the House Democracy Project. So there is a lot of... Um, a lot of study and um, collaboration there. I think one of the, the things that the House does a lot better is a little bit uh, more, there's a little bit more of an evolutionary nature to it as we have a generational change that many of the ways in which um, the House has traditionally um, performed its legislative function have been influenced by other parliaments as the world has gotten smaller and then evolutionary thinking or uh, by people like Mr. Kilmer and Mr. Timmons, uh, a group that I've worked very close with, uh, the Select Committee on Modernization of Congress. So there has been a, a lot more receptivity to those outside ideas. And how about, you know, visualizing rules? You know, I've always been interested in the fact that rules in many cases, or most mm -hmm. cases are written by lawyers, they're in paragraphs, they're mm -hmm. difficult to understand. And on the other hand, you could have a flow chart, right, with different boxes mm -hmm. and how things would flow. And of course, when people try to make those flow charts of Congress, they get so complicated, you can't understand them. So yeah. are, are there ways that you've thought about trying to communicate rules beyond the textual version? So that is an excellent uh, question and not one that gets enough attention. Uh, over my career, uh, looking at other similar 
officials. Uh, one of the things we often talk about is how we communicate our rules. And the most basic one as we look at the Super Bowl weekend is how effortlessly it seems and so universally accepted NFL referees can signal their rulings with simple hand gestures. And some of my greatest moments have been the comparisons of what were the initial early debates on the rules of how the Congress would organize itself, pages and pages of oratory from the great leaders, the founders of our House of Representatives on how the origination clause would work, how debates would go. And then fast forward 200 years where my advice is often, was often conveyed with a head shake or nod. And that evolution, we also used to see these very dramatic, complex flowcharts. GPO would make them to train their employees CRS that would cover pages and pages of, of text. And I think that conveyance of how um, the legislative process works is something that could be studied and developed and improved upon by reformers. So you spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about rules more deeply than maybe anybody else as it comes to the U.S. Congress. Like, what would you change if, if you had, if I said, you know, here you go, here's a pen, you know, X out any rule you want and write any new one in. Uh, yeah, what, what what kinds of things would you consider doing? In my in my um, trips and and uh, interactions with um, foreign parliaments, I, I usually make three points. And you know, we used to have a real issue with the arrogant American. And so, what we tried to do was to to fulfill this idea that we're a a more perfect union that we're constantly improving. But the first thing I tell people is I've been working with emerging House of Representatives and parliamentary bodies for 25 years. And do you know the number of them that have adopted two-year terms for their representatives? My guess is zero, all right. <clears throat> zero. The second is that the House in the United States took a very incremental approach to granting rights to its citizens, such that a universal declaration of human rights or something similar to that would really uh, have benefited the House and then benefited the country. And then third, in terms of rules, something that's beguiled our planet forever has been wars between nations, wars between groups, and the way that the US goes to war is something that could use a vast improvement. And so that's how I would portray the issue with regard to dealing with other um, democracies on areas where further study and, and reform uh, could, could be needed. And then I have been someone who has 
always wanted a more open process. And that obviously is something that's going to, you know, greater debate, greater amendments, uh, further, more access of the rank and file to the agenda. But I, at the end of the day, I am a big believer in, in the majoritarian charter of the house. And so that is the advice I give, but I am very content with whatever advice or whatever uh, people use the term rulings that I give, that the end of the process, there is a vote, there is that majoritarian stamp or rejection of, of what is going on. And that, that gives me great solace. So before we move on to the, the common questions I ask everyone, I do want to circle back to the, the party question, because one, one uh, I guess, concern I always have is about the, the rules inside the chambers and how they are uh, maybe kind of ensconcing those parties somehow into the process. The party, an external entity, becomes part of the internal machinery of the Congress. Um, so clearly the speaker having control of the rules committee, you know, you could, you could argue either way on that one, but there are there other rules that are in there that, you know, name Republican or Democrat or somehow through, you know, you know, through inference or through, you know, some kind of uh, some, some mechanism in, you know, support this notion of party and reinforces it as a, institutional component of the rules. Yeah, we, we often see uh, this. We, we counsel the parties on their individual conference and caucus rules. And sometimes they will have um, rules with regard to term limits and such. And from time to time, those have made their way into the House rules. There once was a term limit on the speaker, which was dropped. And there are term limits with regard to chairs and ranking members in, in certain eras of the House. And those uh, types of things, along with a, a kind of evolution in my mind, which has been that um, the blanket of, of partisanship is so extreme and is at such a place now that uh, formerly uh, the parliamentarian's office would not be uh, one to sign on to giving access to the agenda for items that have a certain amount of part bipartisan support. And I have opened my mind to that, but that is a dispute amongst parliamentarians and mavens of the house that is very, very, um, vivid right now. And I, I, I certainly can see it both ways, but as I get farther away, I, I certainly value uh, some of the bipartisan, some of the uh, attempts to, to uh, put a, a notion of, of bipartisan support into the rules. Great. Well, let's move on to phase two, if you're ready, where I ask questions that I ask everybody. So someday we can compare the results. Uh, first question is, what do you think congressional representation should mean? Yeah, I, when thinking about this question, I've, I've really been 
someone who's um, who's thought about it from from the representative government we have chosen, and that we see a lot of examples, especially as I, I focus on the state and local aspect, and then other countries of direct democracy, of plebiscites, ballot initiatives, etc., and that when you contemplate the alternative to our representative system, I am one that uh, is um, a big believer in that human element, that leadership portion of it, that the member of Congress is voted on to lead and to make decisions on behalf of those people that he or she represents. And if there is a desire to move away from that, uh, we know of the alternatives. We, we know of the alternatives, and I, I have a, a big believer in, in that representative uh, element of congressional representative. So you're a Burkean, and in terms of the you know, the, the people, who those constituents actually are, uh, are they the primary voters? Are they the, the whole, the, the party? Are they everybody in the district? Are they 10 generations down, uh, you know, great, great, great grandkids? You know, who, who are the, the constituents that this person's making judgments on behalf of? Yeah, I think that's uh, going to circle back to my uh, earlier issue with regard to the two-year terms. One of the areas where I've had some experiences on the congressional budget, and it is often, well, it is required to have a 10-year window. And then we have these representatives with two-year terms making decisions based on a 10-year on a window. So what I counsel the members to do is to think, Michael, as this interview is gonna show, what will, the future generations think of this decision? What will you think of this decision five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years from now? That may clash with, you know, the vision of the founders that the, the House of Representatives, the body closest to the people was gonna take an instant temperature check, but that I hope fuses with that idea of choosing uh, a leader that is going to be even tempered and, and, and be forward looking in, in terms of making their decisions as a representative. All right. Next question is, how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? I'm sure you've been involved in these discussions over the yes, years. Yes. I put it this way often in, in speeches that I respect the fact that there is a role for governing and then a role for campaigning. I just wish that the dial was turned more towards governing than it currently is. And so anything that would drive towards that uh, equation or theorem is, is how uh, I would uh, envision a future Congress. And so I tried to tailor my advice upon that. And we 
don't take positions with regard to reform efforts that address that. But you could you can tell where I would probably come down when it comes to to individual reform aspects on how Congress should spend its time. The next one I'm, I'm very interested to hear your perspective is uh, how should debate, deliberation, or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress? Should it be on the open more on the floor? Should it be in those committees exposed? Should it be in the committees closed? Should it be at the bar? You know, where where should these 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 kinds of debate dialogue happen? How should they be structured? Yeah, it it is really a concern of mine how front loaded the process has become. That and that has been the reaction to many of the rank and file members is that an idea is conceived. Um, oftentimes, when we see uh, shared government or unified government with all uh, uh, both the, the Congress and the administration under one uh, particular um, party's leadership is that a, a, a bill, an idea is conceived and um, looked at and drafted and you know, addressed uh, as comprehensively as possible prior to the actual legislative process the years of the legislative process being engaged. And I tend to think that that produces less than stellar legislation, that having a broader, longer uh, process would be desirable. But that once again clashes with our two-year terms and the election cycle. So whenever we would look at a proposal, we would be managing all of those um, equities in, in weighing in on those proposals. So the longer that legislation could lay bare and allow for members to refine it, the public to weigh in on it uh, would be uh, the best way for, for uh, at least this particular parliamentarian to to go about the house's business. So it sounds like that kind of process would be best played out in the committee. Since the floor, it can't be such a long period of time, right? In the committee, it can spend more time and get better seasoned by inputs. Yeah. Yes, and, and that used to be the position of uh, someone who, who thought and, and, and wrote a lot about the House of Representatives, Barney Frank. He would often tell members of Congress to really focus on the committee procedure and and uh, and make their mark there because it was so much more open and in those days did not yet have a leadership imprimatur or not on it. And so does that mean your perspective on the floor? You know, some people say we should have open rules. Other people say there's no way. Uh, do you have a, a kind of a, a theory or a thought about what should happen on the floor? It does it should do. there be debate dialogue there or not? I do, and the, you know, I think you're going to find that this plays into a theme as we look at this hundred years ago. Is uh, you know, from now is uh, a mix of the ideal, the constitutional ideal, and the practicalities. And I've talked about 
society and the desire uh, to have uh, more scheduling, more restrictive control over our day-to-day -day activities, even going to the education uh, and management of our children, that that is just playing out in the House of Representatives such that open-ended uh, things. And so this is all trending towards a greater structuring. All the external pressure is on a greater structuring, whereas the founders and the constitution, I think, envision a more deliberative process. And so what we would do is make a suggestion like, we'd like to have controlled openness or a window of openness so that you put it in there to indicate that that was the value that you were committed to, but that you were also aware of the realities of 20 scheduling in 2022. Next question is what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years? As I said, I think I would like to see more, more uh, emphasis on, on governing. And then the thing that I have preached, and I think Congress plays a great role in this, is with regard to civic education. That civic education has been uh, underemphasized in the case of our education system. And then that has uh, had effects on the Congress. And one of the analogies I often say is that uh, the parliamentarian is uh, teaching algebra or advanced algebra. And oftentimes the people that he or she is reaching uh, are only capable of basic math. Right. And that, that, that is something whereby I think there's a real uh, shift is occurring, uh, but it, it's something that I would love for the Congress to really lean into. What book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform? With regard to reform, uh, I'm, I uh, tried to stay away from a lot of, of that before fear of, of grasping a particular idea or, or trying to um, be a cheerleader for a particular idea. I really thought, and I still believe that being a good parliamentarian, being a, a good effective lawmaker is about the three Ps of knowing, you know, people, policy and procedure. And The Dance of Legislation is a book from the 1970s that talks about the advancement of the Public Health Service Corps. And it captures a sufficient amount of procedural detail for someone like myself. There are two former staffers that have written books, John Lawrence and Don Wolfensberger, who uh, really do a good job of, of making sure that the procedural aspects of particular activities uh, are, um, are documented, which is something that I certainly appreciate. 
Right. Well, last question is really about your plans. You see, you've retired, but you're but you're working. Uh, do you have any? You have any more books coming? Yeah. You know, what, what what are your plans in the coming year? I, I do work very closely. Uh, I, I try to be as available as I can to the select committee on modernization of the Congress. I work uh, with two professors that you know well uh, at the Center for Effective Lawmaking at uh, University of Virginia and and um, Vanderbilt. And then uh, I work on a lot of uh, democracy building projects here at the my current employer, the US Chamber of Commerce. So I am keeping myself very uh, active in, in, in those areas, as well as some some guest lecturing. But currently, I'm, I'm watching the debate on the Electoral Count Act, which is something that I worked very closely with for 25 years that has become the issue of the day after largely being ignored for quite quite some time. So I'm watching that debate closely and uh, will uh, try to be uh, a positive influence on that debate as I can. Right, well, Mr. Wickham, thank you so much for your service and uh, thank you for the time and uh, discussion about Congress. Thanks so much for this uh, project and I'm gonna try to uh, highlight it and, and get you some, some more participants because it, it is very valuable. All very welcome, thank you.